the History Channel original podcast. Hey, History This Week listeners, it's Sally here. Before we get started, I have a big announcement. History This Week has been named as an honoree for this year's Webby Award for Best Documentary Podcast. And we were also nominated for Best Featured Guests for our Reconstruction miniseries. And we need your support to win. Go to bit.ly slash htw to vote and make your voice heard. That's bit.ly slash htwvote. And now, here's this week's episode. History This Week. And Sports History This Week. April 10th, 1971. I'm Sally Helm. And I'm Kaylin Jones. Kaylin, we are sort of ping-ponging back and forth here. (laughs) We are, and that's for a reason. This story is about ping-pong. It is about ping-pong and about one of the biggest geopolitical shifts of the 20th century. I think that is fair to say. And it has to do with relations between the U.S. and China. We are starting our story on April 10th of 1971. And at that moment, no American group has been invited to China in over 20 years. And against all odds, the people to change that are a ragtag group of American table tennis players. And we got to talk to three of the four living members of the team. One of them is Connie Swears, who was just 23 when she stepped off the bridge leading from Hong Kong to China. The border crossing that we went was an old train bridge, I think, that we walked across. We had to haul our luggage across that border. There were Red Army guards standing there with rifles. And they told us they would take our passports. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going into a communist country. I'm not going to have a passport. (laughs) If anything happened, would we get out? Today, ping pong diplomacy. How did table tennis turn into a powerful tool of foreign policy? And how did these athletes leave an impact that went far beyond a nine by five foot ping pong table? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kaylin, before we get into this story, which is a high-stakes geopolitical drama, I want to start by asking you about ping pong, because one of the funniest things about this story is that ping pong, table tennis, is this crucial, crucial part of the geopolitical drama. So I guess my question is just like, I don't know, did you play ping pong growing up? What are your memories of ping pong? (laughs) I did play as a kid in elementary school back at Chino Valley Christian School. Um, We played after school all the time. Mm. I would play with this kid named Jason Wu. And I didn't really challenge (laughs) him too often because he was much, much better than me. Had a beautiful spin move. Oh, nice, Jason. (laughs) Good job. I got caught out by a spin in my time as well. Those are hard to return. (laughs) Yeah, what, what about you? 
Well, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit reluctant to admit this because I know my family listens to this podcast. But um, <laughs> when it comes to ping pong, I have no backhand. I only have a forehand. So I kind of have mm. to scooch back and forth on the table. So I'm sure I've just sunk my ping pong prospects for <laughs> the future by re- by revealing that to you here. But yeah, I you know, I played growing up. I played mostly like on summer vacation, which I guess like it sounds to me like you and I kind of had the classic ping pong experience, at least classic in the way that I think of it, like rec rooms and, you know, playing with your sister. Right. But ping pong is, of course, a real serious sport for real serious athletes. Yeah, there are professional table tennis players, and I actually talked to a few of them, including Olga Sotez. She's been playing professionally since she was a teenager, and she takes it very seriously. When you have a table tennis racket, you get rubber, you know, for both sides. And there's hundreds of different kinds, you know, because it has to do with the spin off the rubber. Or if you're a hitter, it's different than if you're a spinner and all that. I can't lie to you, you're kind of blowing my mind right now. I never considered that. You know, I'm sure basement players or neighborhood players just pick up any racket that's in the room or something. But, you know, the equipment is a lot more sophisticated. In the 1970s, when Olga is perfecting her side spin serve, the American table tennis world is kind of like a small town. Like, a lot of the players originally got into it because their parents played, and everyone kind of knows everyone. It's not the kind of thing people are watching on TV or selling trading cards for. Top-ranked player Connie Swears told us people often wondered why she'd take up a sport like ping pong because there was no sports scholarships, but we did it more because we really enjoyed the sport. It's fast and it has a lot of spin and speed to it. Connie grew up in Michigan and picked it up the same way the rest of us do. We had a table in our basement, so it was really a family game. And at that time, there was no girls sports in uh, high school. And so my brother was a very good athlete and he taught me how to play table tennis. So that's how I started playing better and better and better. (laughs) And better. By 1971, when Connie's just 22, she's the American Triple Crown champion. Wow, I did not know we had a Triple Crown champion, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently we do. At that point, I was ranked number one. And so I automatically had a spot on the team. That team is being selected to compete at the World Table Tennis Championships. That year's contest is being held in Nagoya, Japan. But you got to remember, there's no money in American ping pong. So we had to pay part of our way to that World Championships. A couple people dropped out because they just didn't want to pay the money to go. That's how 17-year-old Olga Sotez ends up getting a spot on the team. Luckily, the high school I went to, they raised money for me. And it was really neat because every morning in homeroom, they'd say, oh, we got her as far as California. Or, oh, she's almost to Hawaii. <laughs> you know, they, they raised the funds. It was really nice. And she's not even the youngest player who ends up qualifying. That's 15-year-old Judy Bohensky. Today, her last name is Horfrost. I spoke to her, too. I made the U.S. team by the skin of my teeth. Not everybody can just pick up and leave. For me, I was fine with missing that much school. 
<laughs> yeah, I've done it 15 years old. You're like, oh, two weeks to leave school, go play some ping pong. I, I don't blame you. Okay, so the Ragtag U.S. team is now assembled and ready to go to the championships in Japan. The country to beat is China. It's been their national sport since uh, Mao Zedong played in the, the caves during the revolution. That really did happen. Apparently, Mao Zedong, China's leader, loved ping pong so much that he played it during the communist revolution that brought him to power in 1949, inside a cave while he was waiting out a bombing raid. And since that time, since his rise to power, Mao has been pushing ping pong on the country. Nicholas Griffin, who is the author of a book on ping pong diplomacy, he told us about this. You can only have a national sport if you have success in a national sport. The problem was they had no money and there was no way they could compete at sports that have already achieved professional status across the world, like soccer or basketball. So they came up with something called the small ball theory, which was basically that you could get a high return off a low amount of money. Okay, so it's much easier and cheaper to become the best at a sport like ping pong, a small ball sport. It is indeed a small ball sport, one of the smallest balls that I can think of in a sport. (laughs) But there's another thing, which is that Mao also knows that the head of the International Table Tennis Association at the time is a British communist, which possibly made ping pong even more appealing for a communist leader like Mao. Uh, So it's an easy choice to make this the national sport. They actually turned themselves into a world championship program within a decade. By the time the 60s roll around, they are without doubt the number one team in the world. These Chinese ping pong players are treated like celebrities. When they traveled to a tournament, they were accompanied by chefs and photographers and masseurs. Wow. The American athletes have to pay for their own airfare and that's happening? I know, right? It's completely different. The Chinese table tennis champions are even invited to summer on the beach with the Communist Party elite. And Mao also sends them off on missions to other countries to teach ping pong and to hopefully spread Chinese cultural influence along with it. You've got these great moments where they were sending sort of an advanced team of ping pong players to sort of soften relations with countries such as Ghana. It's like they're door-to-door salesmen almost. Yeah, kind of, or I don't know, like ping pong missionaries. I mean, they're ping pong diplomats. That's what they are. They're being sent around the world on these missions. But by 1971, China is coming out of a rough period. Remember, it is not at that point the global power that it is today. The country is suffering economically. And Mao had recently tried to enforce this very radical period of change called the Cultural Revolution. He had totally shut off the country from the rest of the world in an attempt to root out what he considered impure influences. And anyone who is successful in China now automatically becomes a form of villain. And that even includes celebrities such as the entire ping pong team. During the Cultural Revolution, suddenly anything foreign is suspect. So being an athlete who plays your sport internationally, suddenly not so good. Some of the players are jailed. Others are exiled to the countryside to cut wheat. Some are even driven to suicide. Looking at China from across the ocean, Judy Horfrost remembers how mysterious it all was. 
China was a huge unknown. It was behind the bamboo curtain, as the newspapers would say. No one knew. Where are the players? How are they going to play? They haven't been outside of China playing table tennis. Are they okay? What, what's going on? But in 1971, Mao has a new goal that requires him to backtrack on the course of the Cultural Revolution because his relationship with the Soviet Union has gotten strained. There is conflict on the border. And he thinks that improving relations with America, his far away enemy, that is the way to strengthen China's position against the Soviet Union. I spoke about this with Ya Feng Sha, who's a history professor at Long Island University, Brooklyn. He grew up in China and specializes in U.S.-China relations during the Cold War. So Mao was seriously considered that he should try to improve relations with the United States. He couldn't deal with two enemies. You attack your close neighbor if you have to, and you make friends with the country far away. So the Union become his enemy number one. So he believed that he need to improve relations with his enemy number two. So that's the United States. So Mao has basically decided he needs to team up with the U.S. against the Soviet Union. Right. And Shaw says that U.S. President Richard Nixon is also ready to make friends with Mao. Before he was running for president, he published an article basically says China is a country with 25% of world's population armed with nuclear weapon. So mm-hmm. we have to bring China into international society. He also wanted to improve relations with communist China in the hope that it will eventually help him to bring the war in Vietnam to an end. China has been supporting North Vietnam. America has been supporting South Vietnam. And Nixon thinks that if he can smooth things over with Mao, China might back off in Vietnam. Okay, so now Mao and Nixon want to be friends. But they need to take a really roundabout approach to get there. Why can't they just call each other? What's the problem with that? Because the United States and China has demonized each other, has cursed each other in public propaganda, in media, in newspaper for 20 years. When China looked at the U.S., like, what was the demonized picture that they saw? In Chinese view, United States was aggressor. United States was the head of the imperialist, capitalist country. So United States wanted to destroy communist regime in China. What was sort of the demonized version of China that the U.S. saw? From American point of view, China wanted to spread communism in the world. China was expansionist. China was aggressor to the free world. So Mao and Nixon need to get creative. They are doing this high-level diplomatic flirting. Nixon calls China the People's Republic in a speech, so he's using the Communist Party's preferred name. China eases trade restrictions. Nixon sends his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, to Pakistan for some secret backdoor conversations with China. But they aren't really getting anywhere. So Mao has a new idea. It involves ping pong. Remember, ping pong is China's national sport. They have sent ping pong players as diplomatic pawns before. So, you know, it is not such a huge leap. Chinese leader, people like Mao Zedong, they knew China was weak. So by using ping pong, because Chinese players were always the champions, the number one in world competition, by using ping pong as the media to re-engage the world, to re-engage the United States, where 
present China in a very positive light. So in 1971, Mao calls back the Chinese champions from their exile harvesting wheat, and he throws them straight into the international political arena. Meanwhile, across the ocean, the American team is gearing up for their big trip. Olga Soltes had never left the country before. She can still remember the car ride to LAX, crammed in with the other players. Get your motor running. What's the name of that song? Born to be wild. Yeah, I remember they crammed a bunch of us in a car. Born to be wild was blaring on the radio. And I mean, the song fit. It was really neat. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Born to be wild. It fits with this underdog gaggle of table tennis players who are now flying across the ocean to compete in Japan. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When the American ping pong team lands in Nagoya, they are ranked 23rd in the world. They have no expectations that they have really any shot of winning. Olga Soltes and Connie Swears remembered the opening ceremony. Every country marches out, just like the Olympics. A through Z, you all march in and then they play your national anthem. 58 teams parade through the arena. Author Nicholas Griffin says the American team was really diverse. This accidentally incredibly representative group of Americans that include everything from immigrants to hippies, teenage girls, a black man who worked inside the UN. I mean, it couldn't have been a more representative group of Americans if they'd actually been trying. Griffin writes that the Americans are also the only team without matching uniforms. They're each dressed in different colors and styles under their USA jackets. 
The Chinese athletes, on the other hand, are all dressed in crimson red tracksuits. The Chinese team is being run by an army intelligence analyst at that point. The sports program is run by the greatest general who's ever lived and who's still alive in China. Phone calls from the team are going straight to Mao every single day. So this is not a sports team heading to a world championship. This is a team of diplomats who are involved in one of the greatest realignments in diplomatic history. What do you remember about the Chinese team? Like, I don't think you could get near them that much. They came in and out together. They did keep their players kind of separated. In fact, I think they brought their own cooks with them and laundry people. They were very protective of their players. They didn't seem to smile much. <laughs> that was my perspective at the time. The Americans aren't even competing in the same division as the Chinese team. They're ranked way below them but they do get to watch the Chinese athletes play. To my mind, they were, you know, the gods of table tennis. We were awestruck, I think. When Judy and Olga, the youngest American athletes, are free, they sit on the sidelines, check out the styles of play and other things. We'd watch matches together and she would share which player she had a crush on and, you know, things like that. <laughs> Connie Swears manages to win one singles match against a French player. Her doubles teammate is a particularly big personality on the team named Glenn Cowan. Glenn died back in 2004, but in the memories of his teammates, he is still a vivid figure. He wore purple dyed bell-bottom pants, his hair was long, and he wore a bandana thing around his head. He was 100% hippie. He had kind of an outgoing personality. He kind of always marched to his own drummer. Glenn did what Glenn wanted to do. So to his teammates, it is not a huge surprise when one day their bus leaves the competition and they realize Glenn is not on it. You know, that's typical of Glenn. He was kind of in his own little world and time schedules for him was, you know, if he made it, he made it. If he did, didn't, he didn't. So we just said that that's Glenn. So just imagine that you're Glenn Cowan. You're in your own little world. You've missed the team's bus. And to your surprise, as you're walking along back toward town, you get flagged down by a group of players on another bus, the Chinese team's bus. So now remember, this is a big deal. The Chinese team has been split from all the other players. They've got tight security, and they're reporting the Mao himself three times a day. Glenn may not know that last part, but he does know that, like, you know, no one has been hanging out with the Chinese players. And yet, when they wave him down to get on their bus, he decides to hop on board, take a ride along with the Chinese team. Professor Shaw told me what happens next. The best-known player in the Chinese delegation, he was sitting at the back of the uh, bus. He dared to took out a gift and walked to the front of the bus and presented the gift, which is a silk screen image of the Chinese famous mountain called Huangshan, which he presented to Glenn Cohen. The top Chinese ping pong player hands Glenn this gift. He accepts it. And when the bus arrives at the stadium, Glenn walks off and into an animated crowd of photographers. Many of the journalists, uh, they were waiting 
outside of the bus and they took the picture. Uh, very exciting that the Chinese world champion Zhang Zedong was presenting a gift to the American player, Glenn Cohen. Judy Horfrost remembers when Glenn made his way back to the American group. He talked about that later to our team. He's like super excited about it. And this is so great. This is so great. I, I need to get a gift for them. So instead of watching the competition, Glenn sets out to go shopping for a gift to give the Chinese delegation in return. And he found a shirt that said, let it be. I think it had an American flag. It said, let it be on it. And then when we were walking in, I think he kind of waited till there were cameras around. I think it was kind of purposeful. <laughs> That's my perspective 50 years later. It seemed rather like he, you know, was kind of looking around, when's a good time to do this? And he did present Chuang Tung with that Let It Be shirt. And if Glenn was going for a photo op with that timing, he gets it. The press eats up this moment as the spontaneous act of friendship between two players, divided by nationality, brought together through the love of sports. Right. But author Nicholas Griffin told us there is more to the story. Everything about it was predetermined. I mean, Kissinger has said in later years that the Chinese had an extraordinary ability for giving the impression of spontaneity when there was none. They'd been watching all week. They knew he was the sort of guy who would say yes. He was a risk taker. He was unlike anyone else on that team. And he was also someone very fond of the limelight. Griffin has found evidence that the Chinese team intended to facilitate just this kind of moment, before they even left for the tournament. The real giveaway was later on, the number one player in China, Chuang Setong, admitted that he had pre-selected the gift that he then gives Glenn Cowan on that bus. He had been allowed to go to this store in Beijing where diplomats would choose higher-level presents to give to other diplomats. Across the ocean in China, Mao has been watching all this intently. And he's happy with what he's hearing about this gift swap between the American and Chinese players. But the tournament in Japan is about to end. The American team is getting ready to head home. Back to the place where ping pong is an obscure sport nobody follows. That people play in frat basements with no regard to the type of rubber on their rackets. Ah, terrible! But... Mao has already invited a few other table tennis teams to visit Beijing when the competition ends. And Professor Shaw told us, before bed one night, Mao is mulling over an idea. What if we invite the American team to visit, too? Mao had a problem sleeping, so he took a sleeping pill, but he was thinking he couldn't sleep. He was reading the reference news, and he saw the photos of Zhang Zetong with Glenn Owen. And he immediately called his secretary and said, please invite the American delegation. What do you make of the fact that he was on sleeping pills at the time? Like, does that factor into why he makes this decision? Well, yes. Actually, his secretary says, well, Chairman Ma, you told me before that after taking sleeping pill, whatever decision you made will not come. But this time, does it come? Ma says, yes, yes, yes. Back in Nagoya, it is April 7th. The very last day of the World Championships. 17-year-old Olga Soltes is at a team meeting when they're given the news. They've been invited on an all-expense-paid trip to become the first American group allowed in China in over 20 
years. And Judy and I were minors. So we had to call our parents and get permission. I remember calling my dad and it was in the middle of the night here and waking them up saying, you know, can I go to China? It's so funny to imagine these teenagers like calling their parents like as if they're, you know, kids being like, hey, can I sleep over at my friend's house? But it's China where no one is allowed to go. Right. Like the parents, I don't know. Are they just like, I guess you can. Can you? <laughs> like, can I give you permission to go to China? Like no one has permission to go to China. But, you know, OK, Olga's father agrees. And so do Judy's parents. Olga and Judy and Connie and all but two of their teammates agree to visit Beijing even though they don't really know what they're going to find there. We didn't know if we would be safe. In fact, one of the members of our team who was from South Korea, Dao Jun Lee, he was our national champion. He decided he didn't want to take that chance, so he didn't go. For the players who do go, this is an amazing opportunity to play their sport against the best players in the world and to travel somewhere they've never been before. But to a lot of people watching, this invitation doesn't look like it's about ping pong at all. As soon as it became known that we were going to China, immediately there was just an extreme amount of attention on us. At their final dinner in Nagoya, Judy recalls paparazzi swarming around her team. We're just trying to eat our little dinner and cameras are just all around us and I I spilled my Coke and then all the light bulbs go flash, 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 flash from spilling a Coke at dinner. It was, it was a lot of attention. On April 10th, the athletes fly to Hong Kong, then walk across that bridge into China. I have a very strong memory of they were playing music like rousting Chinese national anthem type music. Once we crossed the border, everybody was so friendly and we were taken to a a station where we had tea and then taken to Canton to have a lunch. And that's when we got introduced to their Chinese food, not American Chinese food. Of course, then we went to Beijing. Peking, it was Peking then, not Beijing. It's very different than it is now. Now it's like any big city. But then the highest building was probably only two to four stories high. And it it seemed like everything was just all one color. No one drove cars at that time except for the military. They rode mostly on bicycles or they had donkeys with wagons, you know, that they carry all their stuff in. People on the street would just kind of all stare at us and wonder, what are you doing here? Boy, before we knew it, we had a whole crowd walking behind us, looking at us like, who are these people? The Americans are taken on a whirlwind tour of Beijing's greatest hits. They visit the Great Wall of China, tour the Summer Palace, meet with the Chinese premier, Zhou Enlai, who asks their team captain whether he has any criticism of the trip so far. And he said, Yes, I do. And the whole audience kind of gasped, like, oh, no, he's the one that told us to be on our best behavior. Now he's going to criticize? And he said, you feed us too much. And everybody laughed because every place we went, we would have like an eight to 10 course banquet meal. Of course, the team also does what they were ostensibly there to do, play table tennis in a stadium packed with 20,000 spectators. You'd be lucky in the United States at our national competition to get 300 or 400 people to come and watch it. 
mostly family and friends. We played what you call exhibition matches. They're not like smashing it and ending the point in two seconds. Or the spin is so hard and angled you can't even touch the ball. The Chinese made us look good. When one of us would win a point, they would all just clap in unison. You know, it it was almost as if they had been told, you know, when we win a point, clap. (laughs) I won three out of four matches. Why is that? The reason is uh, what they said over and over again to us, which was friendship first, competition second. Friendship first, competition second. After about a week in China, the Americans board a train back to Hong Kong to catch a flight home to the States. Judy Horfrost remembers the moment the train crossed the border out of Chinese territory. It was so packed, there was no room to move and cameras on our face and, you know, it was like so much uh, overwhelming attention. A reporter came to me and handed me a newspaper, but they said, look, there's a picture of you on the cover of this newspaper shaking hands with Premier Cho Enlai. And your picture was picked up by the Associated Press and it's on all the front pages of all the newspapers around the world. On her flight home to Eugene, Oregon, reporters bought the airplane seats next to Judy's so they could interview her the whole way back. I was, you know, interviewed by Barbara Walters for the Today Show and I was, you know, asked to speak here. There, I mean, 15 years old, but I'm asked, you know, to give my political opinions on everything. President Nixon has been watching all this unfold with delight. His new go-to line greeting White House visitors apparently becomes, have you learned to play ping pong yet? (laughs) Seems like it's the president's new favorite sport. How are people back in the U.S. responding to this visit? How are they talking about it? Overall, the response was very positive. They had a chance to see what communist China looked like and through American players. Kissinger actually said this was a international sensation. And uh, the White House immediately took measures to suspend the economic embargo against China, which has been imposed during the Korean War. Before long, Nixon is sending Kissinger himself to Beijing. And by summer, the president has announced that he'll be visiting too, becoming the first sitting president in U.S. history to visit China. Professor Shaw told me the American visit also left an impact on the ground in China. This ping pong player's visit to Beijing, to China, prepared the Chinese people psychologically and emotionally for the change of relation between these two countries. So it became very smooth. It seems that many of the hurdles between U.S.-China conduct was removed. Friendship first. Competition second. Ping pong diplomacy worked. But Professor Shaw told us we should not jump to any conclusions that a similar move could work today. In 1971, the U.S. and China, they have not been in contact for 20-some years. So they kind of got into a love affair and uh, they were eager to know each other, to engage with each other. But after like 50 years of kind of a marriage between these two sides, there are many grievances, many hatreds, many mistrust, and a sports event will not be able to change the current situation. 
In other words, if the U.S. and China were flirting in 1971, they have since been married. And that marriage is on the rocks. It'll take a lot more than a tiny ball and rubber rackets to repair. Thanks for listening to History This Week. And Sports History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our professional table tennis playing guest, Judy Horfrost. You know you're a part of history when your kids come home from school and say, Mom, you're in the history book. (laughs) Olga Soltes. For probably the first five years, I'd go into a supermarket and somebody would say, oh, aren't you the girl that went to China? (laughs) And Connie Swears. If you take government and politics out of situations, you break down all those barriers and you're able to communicate with each other. And thanks to Yafeng Shah, Senior Professor of Social Sciences at Long Island University, Brooklyn, and author of Negotiating with the Enemy, U.S.-China Talks During the Cold War, 1949 to 1972. And to Nicholas Griffin, author of Ping Pong Diplomacy, The Secret History Behind the Game That Changed the World. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week and Sports History This Week are also produced by David Ingber, Cooper McKim, and Corinne Wallace. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dixon. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week and Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will both see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.